And today on Bike Talk, we have Maritz Lopez Cardozo, who is the founder of Bike Minded Design and Consulting in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. They are the kings of everything bike. And he has a background in design engineering, and he's an expert in public space, cycling infrastructure at all scales and across multiple disciplines. So Maritz, thank you so much for joining us on Bike Talk. Thank you, Lindsay, for that uh, awesome introduction. I mean, it sounds like a whole lot. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing. <laughs> I, I, in, the, in the core, I'm really this uh, bike-minded uh, uh, designer, kind of spatial designer. I just yeah, I love from the Netherlands. Bike-minded. I think we should all be bike-minded. <laughs> yeah, it's it's what I am and what I do. Um, so we are. We're. I'd love to ask you about. Maybe we could start with how the the Dutch approach the design of neighborhoods and how you guys have a sort of, you know, an integrated approach and kind of why you think you guys are so good at that. Yes. Okay. So uh, we are fortunate in the Netherlands that, that this whole cycling revolution um, started already uh, in the seventies. So we were uh, kind of in the same place as in the U S and a lot of other places in our world where you really with this dominant car uh, situation on the streets uh, with congestion and safety, etc. Um, and so, since the seventies, uh, uh, we we started with experiments, you know, to improve cycling. And there were a couple of failed experiments in the beginning. Um, but and really, since the nineties, we had this thinking, uh, which is kind of similar to that vision zero. Um, that really was at the basis of of uh, well developing new infrastructure. Uh, of all kinds. So, uh, and well, that's that's uh, what you said about that integrated approach. I think that's uh, you can really see the fruits of that now, now in in, in the Netherlands, in in like all neighborhoods and and, and cities. And you can literally cycle uh, through the whole country, um, or take a train, or drive your car, and you will you will see it as well. Is that uh, there's planning for all modes. Um, uh, yeah, really on an integrated level. So there's, we have excellent roadway system. You know, it's, it's you know, what's interesting, uh, I think, um, that uh, the Netherlands, the Dutch roadway system gets, I guess, like, is, is the number one uh, best place to drive your car according to Waze, uh, at least <laughs> maybe last year or, or a couple of years back, but it really gets a high appreciation by drivers. It's well organized, but it's, it's also, uh, it's, it's clear to use. Um, well, the same. Well, cycling is really uh, um, made uh, safe and attractive in the Netherlands because we have these comprehensive networks. Uh, all important destinations are are linked up to each other, um, and and we have this this um, kind of vision zero thinking that's that's everywhere. So maybe some places in in in, in most neighborhoods you won't see any specific uh, uh, cycling infrastructure. But it is uh, all designed to be really low speeds. So no white, you know, uh, how many feet uh, are residential streets in the US? You know, it, it, it keeps to, it really amazes me how much asphalt uh, there is. 
um, in residential streets. So in the Netherlands, those are typically, you know, quite narrow and there will, can be some traffic calming, some bumps or, you know, uh, uh, zigzags or whatever. Um, speeds are low and it's safe to cycle there. And then um, if, you, if you go to the city center or other destinations, you will, you know, soon enter uh, kind of primary cycling networks along those, those uh, uh, collector streets where speeds of, of the vehicle speeds are a bit higher, you know, maybe 20, 30 miles an hour. Um, that's where you will uh, see typically a separated uh, bike path. So it still totally feels safe to cycle there and, 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 and you know, bring your kid to school uh, on a bike. Um, yeah, so and uh, that, that integration, it also relates to uh, uh, how the Dutch, uh, how we have evolved as, as uh, uh, people um, living in a swamp in the <laughs> Netherlands, below the water. You know, really, we had to start to, you know, build these dikes together. At least that's it's story I heard and I, I and I it resonated. I, I do believe in that. We... We, did, we had kind of organization around water safety, water management before we had a political kind of system. Now we were collaborating on that level to, you know, keep each other and our, the village and the next village to keep our feet dry, you know, to, and to do the maintenance on these dikes and keep, do all that work together. Um, uh, well, and after that came politics and uh, now we're so many people, most people don't even think about that, but still I'm, I, I think it's kind of, it's part of our, our tradition and how we work. Uh, it, we call it uh, the polder, uh, which is kind of, you know, this thing uh, enclosed by dikes. Uh, and that's also uh, in politics or in, in, in between businesses or when you do projects, kind of finding a common ground and, and, and acknowledging different um, needs, different uh, challenges, and together, you know, finding an integrated solution for all of that at the same time. Well, and now it really sounds like we're, you know, in this little paradise here in the Netherlands because, well, we, we have lots of issues and, and it's not like that all the time, of course, but, you know, a bit of that. And it helps. Uh, we have, I guess, a bit, a bit less uh, a siloed approach also in spatial planning. And I think that really helps. And, and I, uh, in my experience with, with some of the projects I'm involved in, um, in California, um, uh, I, I work uh, uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm, I'm you know, happy, proud and happy to be part of the, the design team for the Lo Los Angeles uh, River Path project, um, but also uh, in the Bay Area, uh, uh, working on some uh, uh, projects, uh, the, the Central Bikeway, Santa Clara, for instance, um, and with the city of Davis. And I've traveled there a couple of instances, so I have yeah, feel really lucky that I was able to do that. And I've learned a bit about your context uh, by doing that. Um, and it surprises me sometimes that I, you know, I just can't help myself as a designer to come up with design solutions. When I, you know, see issues or issues, you see, uh, you try to, you know, uh, imagine a bike uh, path somewhere. And I think, wow, and I see these opportunities, uh, maybe connected to rail or highway or something. And and they're really, you know, technically feasible, cost-effective things that, you know, I think like, hey, let's, you know, we can make a serious pitch out of that. And then you hear like... So basically it, by collaborating between between agencies and, and we, you know, we know that about LA, that, you know, that our agencies are very siloed, you know, people don't talk to each other, but, but 
it, when you're designing a neighborhood, you want it all to be in concert. You want the cars to be working, you know, in a certain way and the transit to work with the bikes and to work with, you know, the, the safe to walk and that there's green space. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you want to, you know, catch the water because we're, we're heating up <laughs> and uh, you want to, well, uh, definitely have have good ways to get around just by bike and have all your destinations close so uh, you become less car dependent yeah uh, do you, you mind telling yeah. us about the benefits of of narrowing the streets i mean you mentioned that and um and i know there's a ton of benefits yeah sure so uh one thing that that uh i yeah i really have to uh, uh I feel strongly about, and, and I have experienced, I cycled around in, in a bunch of neighborhoods now in California and, um, and some other states as well. And, but the streets are just, they're so wide, uh, even in residential streets. And, and I see, uh, kind of, well, maybe it's really a blunt Dutch uh, uh, way to say it, but it feels almost like there's kind of one size, one solution fits all. This is where cars need to drive. Whoop, there we go. Uh, 50 feet of asphalt. No, that's maybe too much. Um, but yeah, I don't know how, how wide residential streets are, but there, you know, you can probably fit six, seven cars uh, door to door in a residential street, some residential streets. You know, they, they can be very wide. Um, and then I think, whoa, uh, you know, you can go very fast there. How it's, it's, if you cycle there, it's really, uh, what is stopping a car driver from 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 speeding? Mm. Um, I also think, whoa, what an investment! What you know, they, they, they spent double amount of money on the street that that was actually needed, uh, and and plus you have to do all this extra maintenance to you know keep up uh, all that, um, and also you have used all that space for asphalt. And, you know, asphalt is nice to drive on and to cycle on. You know, it provides a, a comfortable uh, uh, place for things with wheels. Excellent. But what about, you know, uh, green things and uh, uh, where you want to walk and play and stay and, and for the birds and the bees and everything? Um, right. You can use that space for those things as well. Uh, but if you if you have built it in asphalt, uh, yeah, it kind of becomes traffic space dominated by cars, typically, uh, yeah, and I think there's an opportunity. You know, you, you, I see you could easily optimize that. But it's this tradition of building very wide streets and leaving very little uh, public space. So you see these wide streets, narrow sidewalks, property line. Right, That's right. typically what I have to work with in redesigning streets. And so, um, tell us about yeah. a, taking a neighborhood street and turning it into a cycling street. What would that look like? Yeah, so the cycling street. Um, if if you know, if I compare to the Dutch uh, cycling street concept, if I explain that quickly, it would be for streets that are actually a uh, kind of a primary cycling route, a route where where you will expect lots of cyclists um, to go. Maybe you know to an important destination, uh, something like that. Um, going through a neighborhood, for instance, or maybe a rural street with, uh, you know, some people living there, maybe a business, but the primary function of that route uh, is a cycling route. And using the cycling route concept allows you to, 
well, accommodate the other uh, modes and functions as well. But to emphasize the, the kind of the, the function it has, it's a cycling route. Mm -hmm. so. And what about like street hierarchy in terms of creating streets that aren't residential streets and turning them like maybe a street with like, you know, a bunch of businesses on it. How, what, what would that look like to make that safe for, you know, eight to 80, your eight-year-old to bike and your, you know, your 80-year-old grandmother to bike? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's, you know, the only way how you should, uh, or the, you know, that should be a starting point if you if design a cycle uh, lane. You see lots of cycle lanes with maybe only kind of a, some buffer markings and then cars with 60 miles an hour. I mean, I, I, that's for me, I think like, whoa, uh, maybe it's a start, you know, uh, <laughs> but uh, you wouldn't see that in the Netherlands. So where, where the speeds are very high, cycling infrastructure is separated. Mm -hmm. That's also, again, that, that vision zero thinking, that hierarchy. So on local streets, you can mix because speeds are really slow. On collectors, Already speeds are picking up for vehicle speeds. So you will separate uh, vulnerable uh, um, uh, traffic users, yeah? mm -hmm. uh, pedestrians, cyclists. Um, and those arterials, yeah, I mean, that's really, uh, they're going way too fast. And also, you know, you should have more noise. Uh, maybe you know, if, if you have a lot of lanes, you know, air quality gets really bad. It's really not a place where you want to be. So if you want to make cycling uh, safe and attractive and, and work to, towards that mode shift, um, yeah, um, I mean, sometimes you may, might have to build along a highway, but those are not the nicest places. You know, the cars <laughs> are not creating these uh, humane environments that uh, <laughs> you... <Right. laughs> want to breathe the breathe the air and uh, do your exercise so you are the author of a fabulous book cycling and dutch national infrastructure um so tell us about it yes um so it's a book i have made with uh with uh my colleagues uh of bike minded and with the people from uh rijkswaterstaat uh which is the the the, the ministry for um water management and uh, infrastructure in the Netherlands. Um, and the book is about uh, kind of sharing insights uh, about how cycling can uh, um, kind of benefit these, these uh, large infrastructure projects on different levels. So how, what you can do and how it can help during construction how cycling can help with these mobility goals. And so you're, you're maybe uh, building extra lanes because you have a congested highway, um, but uh, you're doing it somewhere. You have to negotiate uh, with these neighborhoods uh, because you, you know, uh, need to uh, uh, um, acquire uh, property or whatever. Uh, but so, and then uh, for instance, a big opportunity is uh, th to think about uh, local traffic on your freeway. So that's typically in a, a, a thing, uh, that, that thinking that, that they're trying to solve, you know, uh, get 10%. The goal is with that project to get 10% of the, the uh, traffic uh, congestion load of, you know, that, that freeway segment. Um, and then the notion that maybe, you know, even a higher percentage, 15% can be local traffic. So, it, uh, and then uh, the thinking is, hey, if you... Um, you're doing a project on the freeway, 
let's improve these local connections, you know, uh, uh, and uh, maybe create this underpass or, or cycling bridge or, 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 or uh, lots of other examples, good things to uh, give that cycling on a local level a boost uh, or even on a regional level, um, you know, uh, to work on a cycling highway to really provide that alternative between key destination or a, a large neighborhood and, and a working destination. And, and you know, uh, also kind of co-invest in that project as well. And it helps with the mobility goals of the of the highway uh, agency, and it's uh, that well, yeah, you can hear it. it's uh, a great topic. To uh, it was awesome to do all the research and to write a book about it. But I and also believe there's a, a big potential, um, and it perhaps can be some inspiration for um, interagency collaboration um, and and opportunities that may lie there, um, and and yeah, uh, to think about cycling as. Uh, solution for uh, in, in, in these uh, other projects as well. It's really about integrating all, all modes in, in, in projects and, and try to do that. So and the book is available for, uh, you can download it. Uh, maybe you can share that link. Yeah, we'll share um, the link because it's a free download. Everybody should, everybody should take a look. Yeah. And I, well, I, what I think is interesting, uh, in the beginning of the book, there's some kind of general um, uh, notes about uh, cycling <laughs> uh, but it's uh, one thing I like to uh, mention is, is there's a spread about uh, different types of cyclists and we were talking about cyclists all the time and, and everybody has their own kind of mental picture of who that is on the cyclist and then you have these, these stereotypes these, these, these mammals mm-hmm. uh, the, uh, the, the people in Lycra that are whizzing by or, or you know parents with kids or you know they're just typical kind of archetypes but um, so there's an overview and, and, and uh, they have different needs as well, you know, and they, and they, and they cycle at different speeds and they have different goals and, and some are very practical and, 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 and some do it purely for fun. And I think it's important to consider these different cycling types, you know, when you're talking about cycling infrastructure, because there will be different uses. And it's not only typically transport thinking is a lot about uh, uh, commuting. Everybody needs to get to their work. Yes, but there's so many other, you know, little trips and, and going to do groceries and the school runs and, and or this, you know, trip chaining and um, uh, and all that. Uh, uh, or uh, special needs for, for these e-bikes that have a huge potential, I think, in California, because distances are bigger with the uh, enormous sprawl you have. But, you know, if you can reach your office in 40 minutes without sweat, uh, sweat on your past e-bike, and you beat your colleague, uh, who also happens to be your neighbor. You know, he's taking an hour or more uh, sitting in traffic to get there with a the car. I mean, that's... Uh, uh, it's life-changing. That's awesome. If, that's yeah. life, and if you get, but you have to then think about that type of cyclist. Like, hey, for that distance, we really need to have that seamless, you know, fast route uh, between, you know, this big work district and big... To, you have this big bump. You see these big bundles of, of vehicle traffic going through LA region. At least I, you know, I've seen that from these high buildings in the downtown area. Like, wow, you know, what's all this this movement uh, you see? You know, where are they going? And, and the distances are big. But I can also imagine, you know, they're, they're they're more narrow. But and they they will, you know, go to go faster than all these cars. Uh, they will it will not be congested, and they can really connect. Um, you know, key destinations uh, for a lot of people and, and, and provide a viable and attractive, I believe, uh, alternative for transportation. 
But that's kind of a big picture and he's, yeah. That's amazing. Um, Moritz, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to talk to you. Oh, my pleasure. Always love to chat about cycling. Chase Engelhard is a policy analyst and organizer at Climate Resolve, which is an LA County-based climate organization that is unique and that is solely focused on Los Angeles. So you guys do a lot of amazing work in LA, and you're probably the only climate group that really just does LA, LA County and Los Angeles. So, um, so of course we're bike talk. So we want to hear about bikes, but let me start with the, with what the main focus of your work, which is housing density, transportation, and climate. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Thanks so much, uh, for having me, Lindsay. This is, uh, exciting. Yeah. We love bikes at climate resolve. Our, uh, executive director helps co-found Ciclavia. Um, so we're very committed to the bike cause and bikes are a really important climate solution. Um, but they're a piece to a really big puzzle. And um, oftentimes when we think about climate change, or at least in the sort of cultural zeitgeist, people think of like plastic bags um, or uh, going vegan or a lot of these other things that, that get a lot of uh, airtime and focus, um, both positive and negative. Um, when in the state of California, Lindsay, um, can you, can you tell folks what our largest source of greenhouse gas emissions is in the state of California? So 40% of our emissions come from transportation and overall throughout the entire state, 28% of our emissions are just from personal vehicles, the cars that folks drive around every single day. Um, and so that is huge. That's more than industrial pollution. So every single smokestack in the state of yeah. California, you think of every refinery, you drive by Long Beach and you see all of that smoke spill, um, spewing into the air, that is less than the, the vehicles that, that people drive. Um, and so, you know, getting people to drive less is a huge, huge climate strategy. Um, and it's, you know, really possible in, in LA, you know, it, it's a huge, huge problem. And LA has this reputation for being so car oriented. Um, but you know, over 50% of the trips, uh, that we make in LA are under three miles. Um, so when you want to think about bikes as a climate solution, that's a huge part of it. Um, but our built environment and how, uh, densely that we can, um, build housing near transportation and have transportation solutions, whether that's active transportation um, or public transportation and really improve that for people and make that not only accessible, but really enjoyable uh, is gonna be huge, hugely fundamental um, to addressing climate change. Yeah, so you showed me a graph a few weeks ago of what we can do. The, the top things we can do. Well, let's just start with EVs because it's always like the, you know, the, the, the bike versus EV and the kind of can EVs save us. So talk to us about, and of course, everyone should drive an EV. Let me just be clear. Um, we should have no more internal combustion engines out there, but tell us about EVs versus these other strategies. Yeah, no, I'm glad you have that, that caveat. We certainly wouldn't want to say that we're anti-EV 
Um, it's been amazing to see, you know, innovation come along. And if, if you can drive an electric vehicle, it's, it's definitely um, more helpful to the climate than an internal combustion engine. Um, the issue then comes with scale. So uh, if we think about all of the cars that are on the road right now, um, it's not like we're swapping out internal combustion engines for electric engines. We, we are producing entirely new vehicles um, and those all have their own embodied carbon, right? The amount of, thing, uh, of emissions that are associated with building a new car um, are not insignificant, right? Um, and so that is something that we need to think about versus say like an e-bike, um, which has significantly uh, lower embodied carbon and can, um, in a lot of ways, uh, replace cars for lots of different kinds of trips, um, right? Okay. Um, and so everything, you, you, you need to use energy and uh, raw materials to produce anything, um, and, right? And so cars, um, that embodied carbon, that intensity, the amount of energy that's being used to produce them, um, can be brought down, of course, by using renewable energy and trying to practice as much sustainability as you can in the process, but ultimately is going to um, emit different things. So that by itself is one thing to think about. Um, but then the other thing with scale is just how far behind we are, um, how far behind the eight ball we are on transportation. Um, you know, we, we really need to look at uh, charging infrastructure and access. If, if we think about equity, you know, cars um, are right now a way to improve econo economic mobility for people. But I think that is a lot more a criticism of where public transportation is than um, something to sing the praise of, of cars. And when you're looking at, at new vehicles, um, getting those in the hands of uh, families that, that really need to be able to get around is going to be a lot more challenging and expensive. Um, and so that already poses another challenge. And then you have uh, a topic that it seems like transportation planners have known in the back of their minds for decades, but have failed to acknowledge. And that is something called induced demand. Um, so induced demand uh, is something that means that when we build out capacity for things like freeways, we can actually worsen traffic because we're causing more people um, to channel themselves towards that mode of transportation. Um, the beautiful thing about induced demand is that it's actually a two-way street. And so if we want people to ride more bikes or we want people to ride more public transportation, if we make that easier, more people will do it, right? To, to put uh, an aphorism behind it, uh, if you build it, they will come. And if it's a freeway, they will stop and they will sit there on the 405 for a very long time. And so Again, EVs are great and they are helping and they are part of the solution. But the, uh, if we're looking at what solutions can, can give us the best return on investment and really change the game for climate change, especially in California and especially at the local level in terms of what we have power over, um, housing and transportation policy can really bring us into the future um, and we can be leading the way 
uh, for the United States on addressing climate change. And it's, it's really housing and transportation touch on so many different climate issues. Um, you know, when you, you use the word infill, um, it's important to also think about what the opposite of that is and how we've developed, particularly in the LA metro region, is sprawl. So we have increased the distance between people and their jobs and services um, and other community resources to the extent that it seems impractical to have anything but a car to get you there. And so the closer that we can bring people to services and their jobs, um, and the closer that we can bring those jobs and services to people, um, the easier it is to imagine what it would look like to ride a bike to work or to walk there or to take a bus. Um, and so that is really, really fundamental. And the other piece of sprawl uh, is that space is finite, right? And so um, what we're starting to see, and we've had to um, to recently sue a development um, that that's is that people start to build out in the middle of nowhere um, on pristine ecosystems, uh, and a lot of these ecosystems are really going to be fundamental climate strategies uh, mm. that sequester carbon. Right, um, we need those spaces to keep pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Um, and fixating it um, into the ground, converting it into oxygen. And if we build housing on top of that, uh, we're not going to be able to do that. And so when we talk about infill housing, it has sort of that uh, double-edged um, impact where you're not only providing opportunities for people to live near transportation, near their jobs, near their uh, community services, but you're also taking the pressure off of areas that we really need to conserve. And we definitely advocate um, for um, our cities to have a lot of natural infrastructure because that's going to be really fundamental um, in protecting us from the effects of climate change. You know, we have extreme heat and of course, uh, drought tolerant trees can provide shade that reduce surface temperatures by up to 40 degrees. Fahrenheit is really significant. Um, and of course, we're going to see um, really extreme shifts in precipitation where we have long extended droughts, but then when it rains, it's going to rain really, really hard. Um, and so we do need our soil to be able to infiltrate that water, um, especially, for example, in LA, where we have watersheds in the San Fernando Valley, we can actually capture that water as a, um, as a measure of, of fighting drought. So we love plants. We want them here. So if we're really creating small privatized spaces um, for urban greenery, uh, it's going to become more and more exclusive um, as those become more inaccessible, right? You know, uh, in Los Angeles, the median home price is closely approaching a million dollars. Um, and so there's plenty of people, myself included, that can never afford that. Um, and so it's going to be more important than ever in cities to have spaces that everyone can access um, to have that green space um, and to make room again on, on our streets. Um, cars, again, take up a lot of space. Um, and so if we can reduce the amount uh, of space that we need to dedicate to things like parking and storing cars, th that's space that we can use for things like trees, um, 
And for um, bioswales, which are like little rain gardens that can collect water, um, parklets, even, even um, install little parklets for, for kids to have, you know. Um, if you could paint a picture for us, like, you know, the West Side probably needs a lot of housing. What yeah, would no. you, what would you imagine? What, what is the street or the neighborhood? What would, what would it look like to you? Yeah. So if we are able to um, substantially increase uh, density uh, on the west side or in other areas, what we're able to do then is sort of remove the need for parking by improving active and public transportation. So on the west side, uh, for example, it really in Los Angeles in general, if you've ever tried to go north or south, you've either sat in traffic or been very frustrated running into freeways, cutting off your route as a pedestrian or on mm. a bicycle. And if you're able to do that, you know, there actually are a lot of um, ways to get around on public transportation that we can scale and make a lot faster. And so if we are able to increase the sort of demand for service along a route like Venice Boulevard, for example, and have a bus lane, then you could, you know, wake up in the morning, walk downstairs, and you'd have access to, say, your favorite shop, and you could grab a sandwich, jump on the bus to work, and, and have breakfast on the bus and read a book. And it could be a really lovely experience, you know, um, where you could meet a friend for coffee, you could take your kid. I mean, it really, I think if you have a child in Los Angeles, uh, this is, is a point I think that should be really important, not only in that we really want to address climate change for the future of, of everyone, especially, you know, the youngest Angelinos, but really that it's not, a safe environment um, when we have cars blasting through residential neighborhoods um, in, in really dangerous ways um, in increasingly large vehicles where you can't see kids. And so feeling safe walking around um, and being able to walk outside and, and just enjoy that experience and not have to worry about where you're going to be crossing the street, um, it's, it's really transportation equity, where every mode of, of transportation um, is equally prioritized, right? Where you have just an easy time um, getting around uh, biking or walking as you are, as you're having right now in a car. So you really have options. But then there's also the reality, the everyday economic reality that people face, right? Right now on the West side, we see uh, that it's around almost 70% white in a county that's less than 50% white. Um, and so really kind of opening up um, opportunities to, to desegregate neighborhoods and, and create communities of choice um, is gonna be really, really important. Um, and so that I think is, there's, there's a lot uh, to be excited about when we think about um, these solutions and it's not just uh, for the climate, which of course, uh, you know, I spend all of my time thinking about, um, but there's really a lot of other co-benefits. Chase, thank you so much for coming on Bike Talk. This has been fascinating. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Chase. 
today we have a Queens-based bike activist who is an expert in all things New York and bikes and congestion pricing. So Laura, welcome. Nice to meet you, Lindsay. Thanks for coming. And we are so excited to talk about what is happening in New York City, because of course, you guys have such exciting infrastructure happening. So I'd love to actually hear about congestion pricing. What is going on with the thing that will really change so much? Yeah, so congestion pricing has been discussed for decades in New York City, and it's been needed for decades. Right now, we're waiting for it to be implemented, pretty much. It passed the New York State Legislature in Albany about two years ago. It was kind of delayed by the federal government because they wouldn't specify what kind of environmental review was needed for it. And now they've kicked that off with a 16-month timeline, which is pretty ridiculous considering that we know that this will have a positive environmental impact. It will reduce congestion and therefore pollution. It'll speed commutes. It'll raise the money to fund transit. All good things. And so last week, this week, residents of New York City and surrounding counties have been going to public hearings to say their piece. I would say it's mostly supporters who really want congestion pricing, who will realize the benefits. A couple of people are coming on and asking for exemptions because a toll doesn't have to be monolithic. Theoretically, anything is programmable. It can vary based on the time of the day, what kind of vehicle is going in and out. For example, a lot of motorcycle riders are coming to these hearings and asking for an exemption. The irony that an environmental review, the most environmental policy there is. Yeah, we never got to have a gigantic environmental review for all of the SUVs on our streets or so many of the things that make life dangerous and difficult for us. Right. Three million free parking spaces. I don't remember being asked for a public comment on that. Not at all. Not in my lifetime. I actually interviewed somebody on Bike Talk who talked about dynamic congestion pricing and also that you would price based on literally if there's traffic. So the middle of the night, it might be free and 8 to 8.30 when you have the price surges like Uber surge pricing. And then a few people wait, they stay home and then it comes back down. And then of course, it'd be progressive. Has any of that been discussed? Um, People have mentioned it, but not really in a nuanced way at these public hearings. Most people are coming with strong views one way or the other, even though it's going to happen. These hearings are to help determine how we implement it, not if we implement it. It would be up to the authorities to make that designation. In New York City, the subway costs the same all the time. It's two seventy-five, no matter what time of day or night it is. But the commuter rails that serve us, the Long Island Railroad, Metro North, have peak and off-peak fares. Yeah. You kind of want people to commute in LA. Our peak travel time is eight to eight 30 and 50% of those trips are errands or social visits. but then the other 50% can get to work pricing it a little bit differently. Yeah. I see that too. We'd also like to help people get to work faster. We need to improve transit. We need to run more trains more frequently. We need bus lanes so that bus riders can get to work without getting stuck in traffic. The 14th Street busway in New York City was just the most exciting thing. (laughs) (laughs) They're rolling out a couple of them in neighborhoods around the city. Flushing just got one. 
downtown Jamaica is getting busways. And this really, really does speed up commutes for hundreds of thousands of bus riders. But we still have to beat back the predictable opposition from business owners and drivers and the elected officials that listen to the business owners and the drivers. What do you make of progressive leaders quite see their way past giving over all of our streets to cars? Can you clarify that? What are they in the grips of? The placard abuse, giving out way too many placards, resisting bike lanes. Have you guys ever had luck breaking through to a progressive leader and trying to help them see that cars are actually not particularly progressive? Yeah. So in New York City, we have a number of elected officials in the city council and the state legislature who get it. They walk, they bike, they ride the trains themselves. They really do understand this perspective. They've taken the time to listen to the family members of victims of traffic violence. And they've actually worked on legislation to make our streets safer, to install speed cameras, to require the Department of Transportation to expand the bike network with more ambitious mileage targets. We've done bike rides with many of them. We even had our Congresswoman, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, come on a ride around the Queens portion of the district with us. Wow. How was that? That was wonderful. She knows how to ride. And we really talked about how this ties in with the Green New Deal, how once you have the infrastructure, people have the opportunity to live in a way that's, frankly, affordable, convenient, and good for the environment. And we should be investing in that. Amazing. What would you like to see in New York in terms of your bike network and transit improvements? So we need to continue rapidly expanding the bike network. We still have a lot of really deadly arterial streets. And in a lot of places, they're just the fastest or the only conduit that connects neighborhoods. So we really need to see those redesigned and to include safer crossings for pedestrians, protected bike lanes, bus lanes. We need to also just make regular streets safer. Right now, the speed limit throughout New York City is 25 miles per hour. There's a strong 20 is plenty movement, which would just make most streets safer for the average cyclist because the average cyclist goes maybe 10 to 15 miles per hour. If you get hit by a car that's going 20 miles an hour, you have a 10% chance of dying and then it goes up exponentially. So at 40 miles an hour, you have a 90% chance of dying. So it's not twice as much, nine times as much. But in California, you can ticket at one mile an hour over. And so this is talk of saying ticket at 21 miles an hour. It can be a $10 ticket. It's a slap on the wrist. It's just to say, don't do this and really create that culture of we're all in this together and speed kills. Yeah. In New York City, we have speed cameras at maybe about 2000 intersections near schools, and they only operate during the school week when school is in session and they only ticket when drivers go 11 over. So like 36 miles per hour. Which is basically fatal. What's, you know, great, um, but. (laughs) And those are $50 tickets and most drivers get one and then they stop speeding. 
But we have a real recidivism problem where drivers are just racking them up and they don't care. So we actually got some legislation passed, the Dangerous Vehicle Abatement Program, that would empower the city to impound the vehicles of drivers who rack up 15 speed camera violations within a given amount of time, six months or a year. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, but the city has yet to fully set up this program. And the way it works is there's a restorative justice element to it. After the first five or 10 speed camera violations, they can attend a safe driving course, essentially start over. That's great, but it's not being implemented yet? No, this has really been a problem because... Two weeks ago, a reckless and speeding driver killed a three-month-old baby on a street in Brooklyn. This driver had 91 speed camera violations, and nothing was done about this to get this driver off the road. Oh, my God. Speed is just incredibly deadly. What are you seeing with a bike network that got started a couple years ago under Janet City Con, and it's been hopefully growing, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So recently, one of the most exciting things to happen in New York City is that the city agreed to convert vehicle lanes on the Brooklyn and the Queensboro Bridge to bike or pedestrian use. Currently on the Queensboro Bridge and previously on the Brooklyn Bridge, cyclists and pedestrians had to share narrow, overcrowded spaces. And this was resulting in lots of crashes, lots of injuries, because they were narrow spaces with steep grades and so many different uses all at once. You had pedestrians going at all speeds, stopping to take photos, joggers, people on rollerblades, scooters, bicycles, electric bicycles, all competing for the same narrow space. And so on the Brooklyn Bridge, they converted a vehicle lane into a bike lane and pedestrians start keeping the promenade, which is the iconic tourist destination. And on the Queensboro Bridge, this shared lane is the North Outer Roadway. They're also going to open the South Adder Roadway and give that to pedestrians so that it'll only be cyclists. Very crowded North Adder Roadway right now. Wow. And is there movement afoot to really start limiting how many cars go back and forth into Manhattan? Well, the main opposition we heard to this plan was that it would increase vehicle congestion. And we just had to say, you have to value our lives and our safety. And you have to give this bike boom we've seen during the pandemic room to grow. Otherwise, the bridges are going to be limiters to the network. So the other positive impacts to this will be the city will also have to make the connecting routes safer because you just cannot have a gap in the network at a high traffic location. That's just a recipe for disaster. And so we are kind of seeing some of the benefits radiate out as they get ready for that. Wow. You have a new mayor coming in. Eric Adams, any predictions on what you're going to see in terms of bikes and transit in New York? Well, with Eric Adams, I would anticipate strong support for the Greenway Network. He's been a supporter of the Brooklyn Greenway Initiative, which is one of the most highly trafficked routes in the city. Most of it's been just a painted lane for about a decade, and it's finally getting upgraded to a sidewalk level path with plantings around it. And it's beautiful. I hope we'll see a lot more of this kind of investment because this is what really makes it possible for people of all ages and abilities to ride. Since Eric Adams won big in the outer boroughs, 
I hope that greenways throughout the outer boroughs see the same investments that the greenways in Manhattan and along the Brooklyn waterfront have received in the past decade. And as far as on-street projects, I think he will prioritize safety when projects are very clearly needed and have popular support. My main concerns are with regards to police enforcement and placard abuse and some of the things that make a lot of our existing bike network kind of treacherous. We have a lot of painted lanes or lanes that are only protected by flimsy plastic flexi posts that are constantly parked in instead of designing better bike lanes that you can't drive a car or a truck into. These are heavily reliant on enforcement, but the people who are supposed to be doing this enforcement are also abusing the infrastructure. Right. Yeah. So there's a lot of Twitter photos, placard abuse. <laughs> like I think that's their Twitter handle daily. It's a lot. It's crazy. Well, Laura, it's been so good to talk to you. Is there anything else that we should know out in LA about the bike scene in New York? Yeah, it's really growing. Throughout the pandemic, so many people bought bikes for transportation and recreation. There are so many kids on bikes here. A lot more women, seniors, People have really embraced e-bikes. They're legal now. And everyone who gets one loves it because you really do get places faster than you would by car and in some cases by transit. Oh, I did want to say with regards to congestion pricing, actually, the hope is that as there are fewer vehicles on the road, in order to prevent speeding on wide, empty streets, will reclaim that spatial dividend to build wider sidewalks, protected bike lanes, bus lanes, and other uses of street space. Interesting. So congestion pricing will bring down the number of vehicles in the city. And with that, suddenly lanes will free up and you can really reimagine the streets. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, because we don't want fewer vehicles to turn them into speedways. Right now, we have a lot of four or five lane congested avenues, honestly, in the central business district of Manhattan. And these are really wide crossing distances for pedestrians. A lot of drivers block the crosswalks, even run through red lights. And we would want to rein that in. Yeah, building out the things that keep people safe and improve the quality of life. We want more space for outdoor dining, for street vendors, for cultural performances, all the things that make life in the city exciting and vibrant. It sounds magical. We wish you luck. We're very jealous. And thank you again for coming on Bike Talk. Thank you for having me.